Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't black go having the businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourself up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside of their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries, <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station, and you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad mouthing you. And O'Reilly, they can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you gonna do? You can't respond. You can't communicate with your own people because you don't have a, you don't have an economic base. Fifty-one percent of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, you know, you only make up twelve percent of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they over-incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches they never changed anything.
All right. Uh, this one on It's My House, my title is um, House Near Walden Pond. And um, that was, uh, well, not on Walden Pond, but the correct title is Walden Life in the Woods. Walden Life in the Woods, that's the, the, the name of the uh, literary work. And it was uh, penned by Henry David Thoreau. And we've got uh, some audio on that. So we're going to play some audio about uh, um, out of that memoir. Because um, what he did was he built a small, real basic some people call it a cabin in the woods and lived like a real simplistic life, lifestyle. Uh, really wasn't uncommon for that day, but uh, it, it it made a, a impact. So we're going to play, um, well, let me find it. We'll play this short audio about that and then come back. walking to the original location of Thoreau's cabin. Thoreau was looking for a place to uh, have some chance, uh, time to get away from things for a while. So his friend Ralph Waldo Emerson had owned 14 acres of land on the shores of Walden Pond, and he gave permission to Thoreau to build his cabin on his land here at Walden. People like Thoreau and Emerson, they were early conservationists. They were thinking about conservation in a totally different light. This was all private property in those days. And the people of Concord in the area bought the land here for the sole reason of coming out and cutting the trees down to use for their personal usage, for a house building, for firewood. And so Emerson and Thoreau were thinking in a totally different light. This comes from his journal. This was in the year 1859. I think that every town should have a park, or rather a primitive forest of 500 or 1,000 acres, either in one body or several, where a stick should never be cut for fuel, nor for the navy, nor to make wagons, but stand and decay for higher uses, a common possession forever for instruction and recreation. The original house would have been right over here in this area that's marked off. It was very small, 10 by 15, he had an 8 foot high ceiling, was one room. Thoreau wanted to live his life as simply as possible and that meant having a small house, having as few possessions as necessary. I'll go through the front door. So his desk would have been right here. He would have done a lot of his writings early in the morning. The house pointed towards the eastern side of the pond. He had the luxury of getting up and watching sunrises every day. Over here, it would have been his fireplace. Right over here would have been a very modest bed, not very comfortable as you can imagine. In his house, he only had three chairs. And in his quote from his book, Walden, he says he had one for solitude two for friendship, and three for society. Thoreau, when he was out here, he didn't want to spend his time working for money so that he could purchase possessions. He was out here to get closer to nature. So he didn't have much, but he didn't want much. This was all he needed. As he said, he had nature all around him. What else would you need? Now, Thoreau was always into the outdoors. He was a naturalist from a teenager. But once he lived out here for a while, he realized that there was a whole other world around him that even he wasn't as aware about. 
and he wanted to share that experience with people. This would have been a main trail to get to Walden from Concord in those days. So every time somebody wanted to come to Walden Pond, they had to walk right by Thoreau's house. And he entertained visitors, and he talked to people, and he, some people say he put himself on display when he was out here to maybe get a point across. Certainly it seems extreme to us today to try to go back and live a life like this. Thoreau was certainly roughing it, certainly by our standards. But even in his time, he would go into town periodically, and he would oftentimes go out to eat. So Thoreau wasn't purposely living it on the rough side. He liked to have a balance. And, you know, I think if people can take that message away, that's important today. We've contaminated our lives with materialistic things. Uh, you've got a house here that's an all-in-one unit. You've got a bed, you've got a, you know, heating, you've got your writing desk, you've got everything you need, and I'm sure he went to the toilet in the woods probably, but we could figure out some little, tiny little attachment for that. Um, we could live a lot less materialistic than what we are today. Well, Thoreau was certainly an early conservationist, and some people will go and say that Thoreau was the father of the American conservation movement because of his life here at Walden Pond. Towards the end of Thoreau's life, he started studying ecology, but that word didn't exist at that time. This is in the late 1850s. He wanted to know how the trees got here and how they grow. So he was starting to study the succession of seeds and forestry, and he was really thinking about ecology really before the term existed. So really, again, ahead of his time, we think of him as an early conservationist, but he was also an early ecologist. Thoreau's experiment and his life out here at Walden Pond certainly enlightened people for generations to come. And as we lose more open space today, his, his legacy and his writings of Walden and nature have more meaning now than ever. Now, essentially, Walden did something that a lot of people, well, first thing, if you look at the history of man and housing, he really didn't do anything unusual. However, at the time he wrote this piece, um, Life in the Woods, and even now in 2018, it's a significant writing because essentially this guy by building a simple, today you would call it a tiny house. Some people call it a cabin, but he built something simple. And, I mean, you can, there, there are pictures of it online and everything. But it was real simple. He had a bed, three chairs, some other knickknacks. He had the, the basics. And you have a lot of people, including couples and couples with small children, that are that are going this way, debt-free living, debt-free living. I'm going to play this next audio about a 13-year-old, a 13-year-old who built a small structure himself, a, a tiny house, for $1,500 at 13 years old. Before Thanksgiving of this year, our goal is to break camp uh, in Tab, Oklahoma, and people that are interested in learning how to build their own place without bank financing are welcome to join us. Uh, and, and the key here is this, debt-free debt living. If you don't want to live in it, rent it out. 
or you can maybe use it as a weekend getaway. But anyway, let, let's go to this 13-year-old who basically has taken a page out of the Walden uh, equation and built his own, I mean, 13, man. Hey, what's up? It's Deke, RelaxShacks.com. Coming up, we have a pretty cool event. It's going to be art-related in conjunction with repurposed materials from a tiny house build and more. Art meets trash, a hands-on workshop in Stoughton, Mass. Check out shop.stayvocal.com. There's a deck. I built this deck. It's fully reclaimed. Um, I spent zero uh, money on it. If you go on this side over here, I have some landscaping right here. These are two peony bushes. And then one of my subscribers um, thought I should have a flag on the outside of my house, so now I have a flag on the outside of my house. Um, this is a spruce tree, I think, that is not growing, um, partially my fault. And then we have another flower right here. Um, this is where the electricity comes into my house. Um, there's kind of one that runs all the way back there. This is one of my side windows. Um, I reclaimed this window. And on the on the back side of the house, I just have some more flowers. And we have the um, the back and this side wall over here is covered with vinyl. This is fully reclaimed vinyl siding from my grandma's house that she had left over. On the front of the house, we have a steel door. Um, this I got reclaimed. Um, one of my, my uncle's friends had this, and so I painted it, and it's a steel door, the window. Um, I have another window that's reclaimed for free, and I spent $35 on that window right there. I have around a four-foot, not even a four-foot overhang, so I can, you know, unlock the door when it's raining, and I don't have to worry about rain getting on me. I have some flowers over here, and then I have a tomato plant that's growing some tomatoes right now. I built a mini fireplace right here. Um, and I have a hammock stand on the opposite side. Now that we're done with the outside tour, there's not much on the outside, but there's a lot inside. So let's make our ways inside. So right as you walk in to the uh, house, um, we have a carpet that kind of, you know, makes it feel a little more homey. Um, the floor is actually a plywood that I used some putty, leveled it out, and then painted it. Um, that was just because it's not air conditioning in here, and if uh, you ever, you know, since it's not air conditioning, heat and cold, and it, the floor would just not look good. So I decided to plant the floor, and it also um, made it cost less. Right as you walk into your right side, you have the kitchen. This is the kitchen countertop. Um, there's a big story on this. I'll have to watch my kitchen countertop fail, but I also have stor storage right underneath it where I keep some, you know, news articles um, stuff like that. Um, right above it, we have uh, the countertop right here. This is a medicine cabinet, which I store some things like, um, you know, cups, lighter, flashlight, some silverware, you know, seasoning, stuff like that. The tiling right here is actually sticky floor tile that I used, and it looks really nice. Above here, we have some storage where I keep some, you know, 
um, paper towels and some mini tripods. I get plumbing and there is no plumbing in the house so this right here stores water. The bowl comes down like this and then you can have water to use. We also use biodegradable soap so you can actually dump it in the lawn if you need to. We store under here. Um, what we store under here, my grandma made these curtains for me to cover everything up, but I store this electric Coleman fridge, and then um, I have a hot plate for cooking, and then I have some pans under here with some food storage as well as like that, like pancake mix, some extra paper towels, and some canned food and things like that, just to have some food in here. Um, this right here is a pretty cool part of the house. Um, it's actually a piece of glass I reclaimed from our front door. We had to redo our front door glass because they were leaking. And so I took it and incorporated it into my storage slash ladder slash, you know, everything. This is a really big part of the house right here. Across that, on the other side, I have a speaker up here. That's just a portable speaker that I can listen to music on. And then I have some lights that light up when it's night out. And then there's also some more storage up here. All the photos on the wall um, are from South Carolina when we went on vacation. I took all these photos myself. And then as you keep moving on, we have a little power strip right here. Um, we also have this TV. Um, and this TV can pull out and, you know, swivel as much as it wants. And it can just go right back into the wall just like that. We have a little, you know, um, stand that I keep some tiny house books in. Since there is no screen to that window, we just have a setting screen, and that keeps all the bugs out. Um, we have a little footstool that you can bring out and put your feet on if you need to. My grandma made this. And then this for the couch. Um, this is actually uh, an ottoman, and we got it from Ikea. And then it lifts up, and you have storage underneath. Um, so that's really cool. We have some pillows, and this is a pretty cool part. So you pull a pipe out, hit that. And then this folds down, just like that. And now you have a whole table. And then you can sit, eat. Um, there's actually, I saw a chair right behind the couch. And so you can have someone right there. Someone can sit on here. And this can fit two people. So if I needed to, I could seat around one, two, three. I could sit four people at this table. But that would be really, really tight. And then this folds up just like that put the pipe away. This is the loft. So this is the stairs that go up to the loft. Up here, I have a mattress. This is a foam mattress that my uh, dad uh, used leftover foam and made this. Um, it's actually really comfortable and I personally think it's more comfortable than my own mattress in my bedroom. Um, up here, I have, you know, this is, a, this is a lower point. Up there is the highest point. Um, I have plenty of room, um, I'm 5'7", something like that, um, and I have a fan up here that, you know, gets a little hot up here, so I, you know, use it for circulation. Um, I have the safety things like fire extinguisher, um, uh, smoke alarm, and then I have a window, um, and with a screen. Up here, I have, uh, storage, so I store, like, a deck of cards, and then I also store some clothes and tissues for the winter um other than that for this house does not have ac and lots of people ask why do i have furnace filters because i don't have a furnace in here um these if you spritz them with water from a water um uh, sprayer 
and put them in a window. When the wind comes through or you have a fan in front of it, it blows cool air through the house. So that's how they keep the house cool um, during the summer. And then during the winter, I would keep it warm. Is I just use a little space heater, and that's all I need. Especially when I'm sleeping, I just put the space heater right here, and it blows hot air. And then during the middle of the night, I wake up, and I can turn it off or turn it on if I get too cold. Um, that works really well because all I have to heat is this really small area. And then when I wake up in the morning, I put the heater down there. Hope you guys liked this video. Um, I know I haven't posted in two weeks. One week I was at Boy Scout summer camp, and the other week I think I was camping and I was pretty busy. So, um, I hope this video makes up for those two weeks lost. Um, we are, we have 392 subscribers, so we only need a few more to hit 400. So if you could, please like and share this video so we can hit 400. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the video, um, and I'll see you in the next video. Bye. All right, that was a 13-year-old, and he was 13 years old at the time. Still might be a teenager. 13-year-old who built his own house, tiny house, no less house. And he will, and that, you know, that because yesterday we were talking about academics. Academics is basically, I think the academic system of education is not efficient and is, it, it's, it's rife with politics, and it dilutes, severely dilutes what I consider real education. That You know, to go to the brick-and-mortar school, or even if you're doing it online, you know, to, listening to lectures, to talking to hear lectures, either in person or online, read the textbook, because uh, a lot of people don't even use the textbook, um, instructors that is, it, and a lot of problems globally that exist today really didn't exist if you go back 100, 150 years ago. The, the, uh, the, the, the amount of homelessness, I mean, more people globally than they were 150 years ago. But the problem of a homeless population in various cities around the world, percentage-wise, is more than it was 100, 150 years ago. The, the concept of bankruptcy and bankruptcy court, that, those are basically newfangled institutions. Um, and with, I think academic education has done more harm to society than good. Now, it, it, once again, now we have to qualify this because certain, certain disciplines, they teach it differently. Like, for instance, in medical school, medical school, you're going to get practical hands-on Treatment. Although they use the academic system to weed people out before you actually get to that hands-on application type thing, they probably do it with engineering. Um, now, the way the building trades are taught to a very high degree, it's hands-on. Like we said on here before, you might have out of a five-day week somebody that doesn't know anything. You just say so you got into a, a local union. 
so you have to, you know, you got, you know, you have to become an apprentice. Day Monday, you might be in class, but Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you are actually applying, getting hands-on, real-life working experience based on what you pick up in class on Monday. And yesterday, we also brought out in in certain countries as well, like in your various Europe countries, like in this country. Most people, when they graduate from school or university, they're going to get a bachelor's of science or a bachelor's of arts, BA or BS degree. Whereas in certain European countries, they they don't issue those degrees. They issue a bachelor of applied science or bachelor's of applied arts. Well, you, you actually are getting hands-on, real-life experience. Now, typically in your BA or BS report, it all depends. You might get an internship for a semester or two or something like that. But uh, I'm you know, I'm not big on it. I think the academic system of education is done more harm than good. Um, and... That's why I coined the term make a difference. But in any event, getting back to um, House near Walden Pond 2.0, let's do a quick tour of Walden Pond and then Walden Thoreau, uh, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote the book, Life in the Woods, he's got four basic principles that I want to go over. I brought you to the Walden Pond Reservation, not far from Concord, Massachusetts, because in many ways this is where the whole concept of a getaway cabin in the woods, a retreat with nature, originates. There was a man named Henry David Thoreau who lived in the 19th century, writer, philosopher, famous today around the world for some of the, the ideas that he really believed in very strongly. In 1845, he came here to the edge of this pond and he built a tiny little cabin an escape. He wasn't a hermit, but he was really interested in the experience of living with nature to see how nature would affect him and how he affected nature. He really bemoaned the fact that even in those days, many of the forests of America were being timbered for the railroads and for lumber industry. He built a cabin not far from here. Let's look at the, the little remnants of the cabin. Thoreau came from a cultured background. His family were manufacturers in New England. He was educated at the Concord Academy and at Harvard College. But when he came out here to Walden Pond, he chose to live very simply. This is actually the site of the cabin, maybe 10 by 14. And these are actually the foundation stones for his hearth and his chimney. It was during his Harvard days that Thoreau became acquainted with Ralph Waldo Emerson, preeminent 19th century philosopher, transcendentalist, friend of people like Bronson Alcott, the father of Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women. And it was Emerson who owned this land and who made it possible for Thoreau to have his experiment here. The little shed, the little hut, was actually sold to a farmer and moved away. Eventually, it did duty as a pig shed. But Bronson Alcott wanted to commemorate the site of the experiment, and he created a, a cairn with a bunch of stones to mark the site. Over the decades, fans of Thoreau's have brought thousands more stones. 
fact, you can turn one over and occasionally find an old date. Someone named Temple in 1878. And I brought a rock for all of us. In the late 19th century, numerous projects were undertaken to make Walden Pond attractive to the public. The Fitchburg Railroad, which had laid tracks past Walden back in 1866, built an excursion park on the shore of Icewort Cove. The facilities, concessions, swings, bathhouses, boats, and halls for dining, dancing, and public speaking served church gatherings and fundraisers, July 4th festivals, and commercial associations. It was a popular attraction until it burnt down in 1902. When in 1922, the Emerson, Forbes, and Haywood families granted some 80 acres of land surrounding the pond to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, they restricted activity on the premises for the purposes of preserving the Walden of Emerson and Thoreau. Thoreau's account of his two years living here on Walden Pond was published as his masterpiece, Walden. He's considered the father of conservation, and Walden Pond is really the birthplace of the modern environmentalist movement. For the last eight years, a man from Pennsylvania named David Bartow, a schoolteacher, has recreated the personality of Henry David Thoreau here in the summertime. Let's visit him and also take a look at a recreation of The Cabin in the Woods. Hello, Mr. Thoreau. Oh, good day, sir. I am Henry Thoreau. Good day. How are you? I am Bob Vila, although I'm sure you've never heard of me. Folks down in Concord said that I might find you here near the pond. Well, I'm glad to make your acquaintance, sir. Would you mind if I asked you a few questions? I am amenable, sir. What has prompted you to come live alone here on the edge of Walden Pond? Well, in particular, I came to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, to see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover I had not lived. How fascinating. In particular, my brother John died in my arms quite violently of lockjaw in 1842. And as I never recovered from that loss, I was wanting my own life to not go awry. I was wanting to know what I was living for myself. Have you found some peace and happiness here on the edge of the pond? Well, by my intimacy with nature, I found myself withdrawn from man. My interest in the sun and the moon in the morning and the evening has compelled me to solitude and I have never found the companion so companionable as solitude. Indeed. Mr. Thoreau, I myself am a builder in my time and place. Oh. And my friends and I were curious about your own little cabin in the woods. Tell me, did you build it by yourself? Well, I pride myself on having done most of the work. However, at the insistence of my friend, Mr. Emerson, I was forced to invite several of the populace of Concord to raise the frame which I did dutifully, for I was squatting on his property. Oh, you were a squatter then? Oh, uh, yes. Yes. In many ways. And the materials, did you obtain them locally? Uh, well, some of them I got well, near your very feet, for I had to get the boulders and sand and whatnot from Walden Pond. And other materials I got from town or from the Irish shanties. One fellow in particular was willing to sell me his shanty as he was off with his family. So you used some... Um, I, material that was previously used. The old shingles, the board. How much money have you spent? Well, the total cost of my house was $28, 12 and a half cents in final accounting, which was about the annual rent for an apartment in Concord. Indeed. Now, I've heard it told that you were recently arrested. Oh, well, who invited you, sir? Yes, there was a poll tax that I had refused to pay, 
and in July of 1846 on my way into Concord to pick up a pair of boots that had been mended and I was to use next day to take the children on a huckleberry party. Well, I was accosted by Mr. Sam Staples, who reminded me I had not paid my poll tax of $1.50 for the last six years. Why did you refuse to pay that? Well, you see, sir, that tax went to support a militia and Massachusetts regulars who were on the only business of rounding up the runaway slaves from the South and then in returning them to their plantation owners there, too. I would not put up with that lapse of freedom. A noble thought. May we see the inside of your dwelling, sir? Well, all is well. You are welcome, sir. Well, this is really cozy. Ah, yes, it is, sir. I very much like the structure of the place. Uh, you're most kind. These are pine logs? Oh, yes. White pine, then, too, sir. And you've left the bark on them? I cut them myself in the nearby woods. Yes, I found that it kept the wood stronger. And I see that you've put in a girt that you've hewn very nicely. Oh, yes, I took some time with that, sir. Did you take a great deal of time in, in, in building the cabin? Oh, yes, I lingered quite a while. I enjoyed it so. I found that I arrived at the end of March of 1845 and did not get my frame up until early May. I finally moved in on July 4th and did not even do my plastering until that November and then December for my chimney, too. So you took your sweet time, but you did a very nice job. What about the furnishings in here? Uh, well, some of them I got secondhand from attic space. Uh, for instance, I refurbished this bed. I caned it myself, you see. Yes, I see. Very nice work. I took some pains for a slant-top desk here and brought in a table as well. Thank God I... You keep it locked, I see. Oh, uh, yes. I have some private manuscripts in there. Thank God I could sit and stand in here without the aid of a furniture warehouse. Indeed. You don't need much. My house was small, and I could hardly entertain an echo in it, I must be honest. And you've been here how long? Well, I lived here for two years, two months, and two days. And at the end of my sojourn, I became a sojourner in civilized life again. Okay, and that was the end of the Bob Vila tour uh, with uh, the uh, actor uh, portraying uh, Thoreau. Um, once again, today's podcast set of House Near Walden Pond 2.0. And that next month, that's what the, the structure will be a structure, uh, our version of, of the House at Walden. Excuse me, the Henry David Thoreau built near Walden Ponds. Uh, now, Thoreau had um, there two ways to look at it, but I'm oh, he had four principles. I'm going to go from some other principles that he had: uh, self-reliance, because essentially what Thoreau did was he financed this out of his pocket. And he didn't spend a whole lot of money to do it. And I think if people took on that philosophy today, they wouldn't get a 30-year mortgage. They wouldn't get a mortgage at all. It's just like you're going to buy a Big Mac. You don't have to get a Big Mac finance. I mean, I know I'm doing extremes. But uh, if if you can't pay for it in cash, don't be, be self-reliant. To simplicity. Simplicity. 
the cabin or hut or whatever you want to call it that the the road built. And matter of fact, he used social capital. That's very important too, um, which I call real social security. He built this because he had social capital with a friend of his. Uh, the friend had what eleven acres, nineteen acres, something like that. So he built this on a friend's land. So that that helped the whole things like out keeping things simple. Uh, now anyway, he has the basics. This little place that he had, and this, you know what? It's the basics. No matter what kind of income you have. We all have the really the exact same basics. He had a roof over his head, a bed to sleep on, and you know, really, is there much more than that? I mean, we're talking about he had the bare rock bottom, bare necessities because all our houses. Because this was a very simple, stripped-down house, cabin, tiny, whatever you want to call it. It cut, it had the rock-bottom beer necessities. What happens to us in our modern world? And because basically, his, you know, you step inside of his, his cabin, it was one room. Now you can you can pimp it a little bit, pimp it out a little bit. And, you know, you can have different compartments within that structure, you know, like, you know, with a bathroom or, or something like that. But it's a house but a collection of boxes. That's all a house is. If you, if you live in a house that's got 10 rooms, one of the reasons for some of you, not all of you, but some of you who have, who are struggling with the rent, who have maybe been evicted, been foreclosed on, all you really need is you being a human being, you can only occupy one space at a time. Physics 101. Even if you have a family, Physics 101 applies. You can only occupy one space at a time. A lot of people get into problems because they're trying to live a sustainable lifestyle, and they can't. First thing, they don't even need. Because once again, all a house is, all an apartment is, is a collection of boxes. That's all a house is: four walls, a floor, and a roof. That's it. Now you can do a collection of them. And make them look different from a McMansion to Buckingham Palace to, uh, you know, Thoreau's cabin on Walden Pond. But essentially, that's all the house is. It's a collection of Some of us have too many boxes. Because if we have these other boxes, see, most people, which we call rooms, and you got stuff on them and you haven't even paid for it yet. And you get emotionally attached to all that stuff, and it just is just not financially, you know, feasible. 
so was Walton. I mean, Walden. I mean, excuse me, Thoreau on Walden Pond. Self-reliance, simplicity. Those are out of the, his basic principles. I would, from my point of view, those are the two biggest ones. So essentially, what we'll be doing next month is we'll be for people who come out and we'll get that information out. Is teaching people how to essentially build a a basic dwelling. Now, for those of you who want to live in it, in your neck of the woods, we'll tell you how to stay legal in that, you know, in those neck of the woods, how to find out that information. Some of you might want to use it. At, you might not want to live in it. You might want to use it as a weekend getaway. There's only limited to your imagination. Some might want to use it as a writing shed a home office, a playhouse. It, it is what you what you will call it after you build it. All we're going to do is have hands-on instruction on how to do it within a reasonable amount of time. I mean, we're, we're doing something real simple, and we're, we're organizing little teams of people because as the audio that I played on here a lot of times, many hands make light work. So if you haven't read it yet, or you can go to YouTube and listen to it, um, you can check out uh, Thoreau's um, writing um, Walden. Life in the Woods, and uh, he did this for like uh, two years, two years and some change. But you have, um, and some people, <clears throat> you know, it might go over your heads, but some people, you might find out how addicted you are to stuff. If you haven't, if you haven't, uh, if you're not familiar with the, uh, it's a video you can watch on YouTube called the story of stuff. And you have a lot of people that they're addicted to stuff. You know, you got you got a you have people that are. have a large closet, large walk-in closet full of stuff, shoes, whatever you might have in it. And you don't even wear them, but if you took it away from that person, you know, they would have psychological problems with it. Well, it gets, you know, you know what's interesting, if when a person goes bankrupt or a person gets locked up in jail, you know what? We go right back to basics. (laughs) The basics is a roof over your head, protection from the elements, somewhere to go at night, you know, some sense of privacy. That's the basics. So uh, we'll we'll let you know the dates on that. Then we'll be doing that on a regular basis, monthly basis. Uh, because what we want to do is we're going to 
and have another podcast. We're going to turn that into Patreon. And essentially our goal, well, not goal because I don't want to use that word goal. Our assignment going into 2018 is, if, like, if we do a two-hour podcast, um, we want to have, a, we're going to start a project, and then if we don't complete it in two hours, by by the time the sun goes down, that particular, so we're going to, our assignment for 2019 is essentially out of a seven-day week, uh, do these, um, what do you call it, the um, Walden, Walden-type houses. That's 20 a month. 20 a month. So we, we, we now this goes into academics because the definition of academics, um is um, – Oh, let me, I still got to memorize it myself. Make academics, an educational curriculum where you can learn to, you can learn by solving personal finance and social problems by making things. So, in our case here, it's not. All right. The personal finance problem that I want to solve, actually it's not mine, but it's my mother's, is she got a reverse mortgage. Now she's bedridden. She can't, she didn't know what she signed when she had any of that. Because she didn't need it. She had a nice retirement. was debt, totally debt-free, more than true. But the reverse mortgage got her 100000 in hoc. And... It's damn near doubled by now. So in order for me to get her back to zero, a second job or a third job or a, fourth, you know, or a job, that particular model, business model, is not going to work to extinguish that kind of money. I could go out and get a Mary Kay kit, Amway kit, some kind of network marketing kit, but I'm, I'm really not in network marketing. Although some people that I've met in network marketing have done fabulously well. You know, this is not my thing. Um, however, I know how to be a landlord. I know how to organize small communities. So, and then with the blog talk thing, because I was looking at, um, well, we I have a habit. We do five days a week, sometimes seven, but mostly five days a week. I did that because if I did one or two days a week, it, it wouldn't become a habit for me. So I just read a book a couple of weeks ago called The First 20 Hours, how you can learn anything from scratch in 20 hours. Now, you're not going to be an expert. You're not going to be a master, but you'll know the basic fundamentals. You'll know enough where you can start to self-correct. And you can always get a coach or a mentor or something that, you know, to keep on improving. So for me, because we've done probably at least 1,200 
podcast so far in just under five years. So, you know, let me do something simple. That's why I like um, the House on Walden Pond or the Rose Book Life in the Woods because it's, it's really simple. Really simple. And it can be whatever a person wants it to be. Like I said, for some people, that house could be home to a single person. Other people, it can be a home to a couple or a couple with a small family or a weekend getaway. It's only, all we're doing is teaching the bare bones fundamentals that a 13-year-old, and actually there's several 12 and 13-year-olds, they're all on YouTube, that have built their own house. And you will not see those people in a homeless shelter ever. There might be something else in life that they might have to deal with, but having a roof over their head, which is essential, will not be one of them. So, like I said, we'll we'll give uh, information on um, on that and um, what neck of the woods will be will be holding these workshops. Now, before we go to um, the phone lines here, uh, let's see, and that that. That 13-year-old built, he built his structure for $1,500. So if you go online, matter of fact, here's something that you can look at. You can go online, like on Realtor.com and go to a place like Detroit. And there are probably 30 other cities besides Detroit. Indianapolis, I mean, Indianapolis, Indiana, Baltimore. You can go to Detroit on Realtor.com and punch in, you know, you're looking for houses and put in, they're going to give you a minimum. Put in the minimum, whatever that minimum might be. It could be zero or $1. And put in, let's say, $1,000 or five, no more than $5,000. You're going to get a whole bunch of houses that come back in that search engine in Detroit that, um, Matter of fact, while we're on the air right now, let's do that. Let's do that right now. Uh, Realtor.com. Okay, we're looking to buy in Detroit, Michigan. All right, and we're looking for houses. Uh, Let's look at the price. Uh, no minimum, maximum. Uh, we're going to put it at uh, let's see, five thousand dollars. On Realtor dot com. They have 35 homes listed for $35,000. I'm excuse me, for 
$5,000 or less. And um, I tell you what, let me, oh, man. Let's, you know what, let's really break that down. I'm going to play this short audio on Acres of Diamonds, and we're going to come back and break this down uh, on housing prices. Back in the year 1843, a man was born who, during his lifetime, was to have a profound effect on literally millions of people. His name was Russell Herman Conwell. He became a lawyer, then a newspaper editor, and finally a clergyman in 1881. It was during this latter period that an incident occurred which was to change his life and the lives of countless others. One day a group of boys came to Dr. Conwell at his church and asked him if he would be willing to instruct them in college courses. They wanted a college education but lacked the money to attend. He told them he'd do all he could, and as the boys left, a thought an idea began forming in Dr. Conwell's mind. He asked himself, why couldn't there be a fine college for poor but deserving young men? Here was a great idea, and he went to work on it at once. Almost single-handedly, Dr. Conwell raised between six and eight million dollars with which he founded the now well-known Temple University of Philadelphia. It was how he raised this money that I want to tell you about. He raised the money by giving lectures all over the country, more than 6,000 of them, and in each he told a story called Acres of Diamonds. This was a true story which had affected him very deeply, just as it affected his audiences. It was the story of a farmer who had settled in Africa. This farmer had heard the exciting stories of other African settlers who had made millions by discovering diamond mines. Realizing the African continent was rich in diamonds, the farmer could hardly wait to sell his farm and search for diamonds himself. He spent the rest of his life wandering the vast African continent, searching for the gleaming gems which brought such high prices on the markets of the world, but without success. Finally, in a sudden fit of despondency, broke and desperate as I remember the story, he threw himself into a river and drowned. During this time, the man who had bought his farm one day found a large and unusual stone in the stream which cut through the property. It turned out to be a great diamond of enormous value and then he discovered that his farm was covered with them. It was to become one of the world's richest diamond mines. Now, the first farmer had owned literally acres of diamonds, but had sold them for practically nothing in order to look for them elsewhere. If he had only taken the time and study to know what diamonds looked like in their rough state, and had first thoroughly explored the land he had owned, he would have had the millions he sought, right on the land he had been living upon. What so profoundly affected Dr. Conwell and subsequently thousands of others was the obvious fact that each of us is at this moment standing in the middle of his own acres of diamonds. If we will only have the wisdom and patience to intelligently and effectively explore the work in which we are now engaged, we will usually find that it contains the riches we seek, whether they be financial or intangible or both. Before we go running off to what we think are greener pastures, Let's make sure that our own is not just as green, or perhaps even greener. While we're looking at other pastures, other people are looking at ours. There's nothing more pitiful to my mind than the person who wastes his life running from one thing to another, like the first farmer, forever looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and never staying with one thing long enough to find it. For no matter what your goal may be, the road to it can be found somewhere in the work in which you now find yourself. 
It wasn't until he was completely paralyzed, for example, and was forced to reach into the resources of his mind, that a Wisconsin farmer got the idea of producing exceptionally good meat products on his farm, and one of the country's largest meatpacking companies was born. His farm contained acres of diamonds, too. He had just never seen them before. A paper salesman found a dirty drinking glass in his hotel room and gave his company the idea of manufacturing paper cups, an idea that solved his financial problems for life. An insurance man got the idea of going back to all the people in his files and really working with them, serving them the way they should be served. That year, he wrote an additional $700,000 of insurance, made the million-dollar roundtable, and found he no longer had to approach coal prospects, that by working with the people he had already sold and on their referrals, he had acres of diamonds right in his filing cabinet. A man out west amassed a fortune with a single small gas station. In the beginning, when things were tough, he would ask himself each morning, what can I do to increase my service to my customers? He still asks that question of himself each morning when he gets up, and while he could have retired years ago a wealthy man, he continues to dominate the business in his area by thinking of new and better ways to be of service. Do you know what the so-called average man would have done in this last case? He would have been worried about how bad business was, because in the beginning my friend had a hard time just feeding his family. When one day a man would have driven in the station in a big shiny car, this average man, seeing the wealthy customer, would have said to himself, I ought to be in his business instead of mine. You see, the average man believes some businesses are better than others, instead of realizing the truth that there are no bad businesses, there are just those people who do not know enough to see the opportunities in the work they're in. Jobs don't have futures. People do. No matter what our work happens to be, it's our business. We're its manager. If we can see no future or opportunity in it, it isn't because it's not there, but only because we can't see it. One time another farmer poked a tiny pumpkin into an empty one-gallon jug. The pumpkin grew until it completely filled the jug and could grow no more. When it was ripe, the farmer broke the glass jug and had a pumpkin which had assumed the jug's exact shape. In life, each of us does a similar thing. We poke ourselves into jugs of our own deciding, and we can grow no larger. But let's be mature enough to realize that it is we who do the poking, not the job, nor the company, nor the territory, nor the economy, nor the times. We do it. We should dispense with limitations and realize there is virtually no limit to our growth and development on the land on which we now find ourselves. Above all, keep this thought in mind as often as you can, on and off the job. Somewhere within the work you are now doing, there lurks an opportunity which will bring you everything you could possibly want for yourself and your family. In closing, here are 12 points to remember. One, if we will develop the wisdom and patience to intelligently and effectively explore the work in which we are now engaged, we will find it contains the riches, tangible and intangible, we seek. Two, before we go running off to what we think are greener pastures, let's realize our own pasture is unlimited. Three, that there are no bad jobs, but that it's the way in which we go about our work which makes it good or bad. Four, that we poke ourselves into jugs beyond which we cannot grow. Let's remove the limitations we've set upon ourselves. Five, that only preparation can ensure our taking advantage of the opportunities which will present themselves in the future, opportunities which are around us now. Six, put your imagination to work on the many ways and means of improving what you're now doing. Seven, learn all you can about your job, your company, and your industry. Eight, since there's no limit to the growth of your industry, it must follow there is similarly no limit on your growth potential within that industry. Nine, 
Our dynamic and growing economy needs and will well reward the uncommon man who seeks a place in this growth. 10. Begin to build your library of reference material pertaining to your company, industry, job, and on how to better serve and get along with people. 11. Set aside an hour a day for this study and research. And 12. Remember the story of the Acres of Diamonds. Zerl Nightingale, thank you. Okay, going back to, and like I said, today's podcast is settled, House Near Walden Pond uh, 2.0, before we went to Acres of Diamonds. And Acres of Diamonds, once again, that concept is something that is near to you, right in your background, I mean, backyard. If we go to Realtor.com and you punch in um, no minimum, and a maximum price for a house on Realtor.com, let's say $5,000. 36 homes are going to pop up. Um, let me see. Uh, there's a home on here for, you know, hold, let me get my, oh, let me backspace. $800. Well, I got the high end here. Let me um, and you can follow along. You know what? I might have to do this search all over again. All right, the minimum price is okay. Oh, let me go right back to Detroit, man. Come on. Anyway, they had a house on here for eight hundred dollars. There's, there's 36 homes in here. Oh, man. Oh, you know what? I got to do this all over again. Um, we're going to pick on Detroit. Okay. What did my computer this one? Okay. Detroit. Um, and you can look at houses. Oh, man. Okay, here we go, Detroit. Any major city in the Rust Belt. Okay, any city in the Rust Belt. All right, now we got Detroit. Hold it. Let's go into price. No minimum, and we're putting in a $5,000. No house in the realtor.com system of above $5,000. Okay, and... It's doing its thing here. Let's go. Come on. This place running slowly. All right. Running slowly on this laptop I got. But you can look at... Because most people that are listening are probably urban dwellers. Let me see how this coming through. For me, I don't... I don't... I don't buy anything on Realtor.com. Um, but it's it's a good place to do some searching. Man, come on, this thing is taking forever to. Uh... Okay, here we go. All right, 
Um, it's a three bedroom, one bathroom, thirteen hundred square feet, four thousand dollars. Here's a three bedroom, one bathroom house. They're asking eight hundred dollars. Um, another house, three bedroom, one bathroom, six hundred ninety-six square feet. They're asking two thousand one hundred dollars, and these are all asking price. So if they're asking for twenty-one hundred. They'll probably pay a thousand. Selling on eight hundred, they might even take five hundred. Now here's the thing with these houses, particularly in an urban city like Detroit, Indianapolis, Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio, any of these cities in the Rust Belt. Although you might be able to pick up a house for a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, or five thousand dollars, the cost to renovate these houses could be breathtaking. You might. Pump, drop, drop in fifty to a hundred thousand dollars and renovate these houses to get them up to code. Um, I wouldn't recommend it to a rank beginner. Um, in any event, uh, I recommend the Thoreau thing. Of course, I've been at it a while. Get raw land in a rural area because for what they're asking. For like, um, let, let's say this take this house for eight hundred dollars. It might need twenty five. Let's say it might need fifty thousand dollars worth of work. And for a fraction of that, you can go into a rural area, buy you some land with nothing on it, and build something for five to ten thousand dollars. As in the case of the kid, he, he built something. And there's a bunch of kids, a bunch of people on YouTube that have built structures, $1,000 or less. So in any event, um, let's see. Let's go to the phone line now. 314, your area. I mean, your phone is um, your, your mic is open. I don't have nothing to say, L.A. I was just listening. Oh, okay. All right. Then. Um, okay. Uh, in any event, well, if anybody's got a question or whatever, 619-768-2945. What we're going to do is essentially within the next 30 days is we're going to get this in before Thanksgiving. Uh, but then it will be on a, a regular monthly basis. We'll be somewhere building, um, helping somebody start up a homestead, or a tiny or a little community, a micro community, or a micro house. And then we're going to take some social problems um, or perceived social problems and and use, use the building techniques or the building to solve those. And for instance, if you got a group of people together, and let's say you've all built let's take an audio. One of the audios we played today was a thirteen year old who built his own place for like fifteen hundred dollars. So let's say you've got ten a group of ten, maybe even twenty, thirteen year olds that have built their own place. Do you think those those kids will ever, ever 
think gentrification is an issue. The only people that really complain about gentrification are people who don't own the neighborhood. You own the neighborhood, you don't get gentrified. It's as simple as that. So we'll, we're going to take topics tackle. Like I say, we're going to take we're going to offer things like kids camps, kids building camps where the children come out, baby boom. I mean, people have to start over, start over camp. We'll have different types of uh, camps of, of demographics and social issues that we come together and we build a solution. Like I said, if you, if you got 10, 20, 13-year-olds, they can build their own community. Gentrification, and I'm, I'm talking about, let's say, you got 10, 15, 20 African-American children. And they have all learned because they have all actually built their own place without bank financing. Those, they'll have a different point of view than somebody twice, three times their age when it comes to gentrification. It will not be an issue for them. They will not be wanting. You will not be reminiscing about what happened to somebody two, three, four hundred years ago. They don't care about somebody didn't get their 40 acres in the mule because they've got their own 40 acres. So that's all part of our academics. Um, organization. Um, let's see. Right. Well, anyway, I recommend if you haven't read the book, or you can listen to it actually. Um, you can do it. Matter of fact, this is one last order I'll play. Um, it's got a tiny house team built, so I haven't played that in so long. I forgot what it was about. So in today's video, I'm going to talk about the different things and odd things about my house and also some facts about it. One odd thing about my house is that I do not have a normal roof. My roof is made out of vinyl from my dad's work that he makes at his work, and it can last up to 20 years. All the vinyl siding on my house is salvaged. This window is also salvaged. This door as well. And this window as well. The only window that is not reused is this window. Another cool thing about my house is 100% of all the sheathing that went on my house is reclaimed. As you can see right here, under that snow there's a black tarp and there's still more plywood under there. This is all reused and was for free, so I paid zero money on my siding. The plywood that went on the loft is also for free and is the same material that is under this carpet. That's all free plywood. Another cool thing is all the 2x6s in the roof and on the foundation are all for free as well. Most of the wire in my house is reused and from old jobs. It is also safe to use and in good condition if you're wondering. Those two pieces of insulation are reused and there's also one piece in this wall right here that's also reused. I don't know if this one counts, but this carpet is from my grandma's house and is in here for temporary use. Um, this is 
old carpet from her house when she put new carpet in her house. If you couldn't notice so far, you can see I've used a lot of um, different methods um, to save the cost of my build. If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education, and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education, and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry, which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man a hundred years ago, and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position to point the finger today at the white man and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he, has, he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind, make, up, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, He'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen.